Religion. There's a loaded word. Today, religion is a word that gets you derided or dismissed no matter if you're in junior high or if you're retired. Religious people in popular culture are either hopelessly naive, sheltered killjoys, at best, or power-hungry, corrupt, and quite probably evil at worst. Popular thinkers tell us that as we get more sophisticated, religion's going to die out. And they seem to have proof. Secular and Christian pollsters will tell you that there's a growing phenomenon of nuns in our country. And that would be N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. These are people who claim to be spiritual, but not religious. And less and less people are willing to check the box on forms and surveys about religious affiliation, opting instead for none. Being religious simply isn't viewed very positively in our world. Or perhaps you've heard this statement. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Maybe you've even said it. I know I have. And the heart behind that statement is 100% correct. The contrast being made is, religion is all about man's attempt to reach God, but Christianity is about God reaching out to man, and it's true. And there's also this thing called the law of unintended consequences when we say things like this. When we dismiss religion as such too quickly. Because, you know, you know what this is, right? The law of unintended consequences. You try to do something good, and inadvertently, by doing something good, you cause another bigger problem. You didn't mean to. My mind, Christians and Haiti is a perfectly good example. We pour millions of dollars into Haiti in donations, and we're trying to do good things, and we have completely destroyed the ability for there to be an economy in Haiti, and businesses can't thrive, and people can't get out of poverty, and we're trying to help, and it's the law of unintended consequences. The question is not whether you help, the question is how you help, and that's what we're going to see today. And when we dismiss religion too quickly, we can lose a point of contact with people, because when people don't feel the need to hide behind a religious veneer, we can see the need more clearly, but those very same people don't think they need what we have to offer at all. In fact, increasingly people believe that they are better off without religion. And by better, I mean as in good. Because those caricatures in pop culture exist for a reason. So today we come to James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, which is all about religion. And what does it have to teach us today? You see, this passage is the capstone of chapter 1, especially verses 19 to 25. And verse 26 is directly related to verses 19 to 21, and verse 27 is directly related to verses 25. 2 to 25. And these two verses will set the theme for the entire next four chapters of the book of James. And I have to tell you, the more I studied this passage this week, after Phil had asked me if I could preach, and I jumped at the chance because I love this passage, 
the more convicted I became. Because I got convicted as a Christian broadly, as an evangelical Christian particularly and personally in my own life. What if the rise of the nuns is at least in part our fault? My fault. What if in my haste to separate true faith from religion, mere ritual, I have let people and myself off the hook? And I was forced to ask myself, our cultural moment today, what would it look like if Christians actually had pure religion? And so, James 1, 26 and 27, where we read the following. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows and their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray this morning that we would see your heart that we would understand what true religion is and that we would be convicted of our own sin, that we would not look down our noses at others, but we would do our best following to become more like you and to act in your place for those around us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In our passage today, James sets up three tests for true religion. The alternative... False religion, James tells us, is worthless. And I'm forced to wonder, do the nuns in the world around us see that the religion most of us profess is worthless? That it's not as real as we would like to believe and that that's the reason why they want nothing to do with it. And the tests are simple. Pure religion is seen first in what you say. Control your tongue, James tells us. He doesn't begin with rational proofs for the existence of God. He doesn't begin with defenses of specific beliefs. He asks a simple question. Does your speech match your belief? What's your conversation like? Are you in control of your tongue or does it control you? You see, the word James uses for religious in verse 26 and religion in verse 27 is interesting. It's rare in the New Testament. It's only found in two other places. In Acts 26.5 and Colossians 2.18. In the first, Paul is talking about being a Pharisee. And he says it's the strictest sect in our religion, our faith as a whole. And the second, in Colossians, refers to a heresy that's going on in the Colossian church where apparently some are worshiping angels and they've created a structure around this. So these words refer to, as one commentator put it, one who stands in awe of the gods and is tremendously scrupulous in what regards them. James is talking about religious observance, outward piety. You know, the person who looks religious. The lives of the Jewish people were dominated by religious observance, and that's who James is mostly writing to. This is 
what the Pharisees obsessed over. And there are whole books of the law in the Old Testament dedicated to observance. The pagan Greeks in the New Testament world would have understood this. There were temples everywhere. Today, the, um, this is the one where, you know, you know what to do and when to do it in church. If you're Catholic, you know when to cross yourself and when to kneel. If you're Baptist, you know not to do those things. And if you're a white Baptist, you don't raise your hands in church. And if you're a black Baptist, you wave your hands in church, right? I grew up Baptist. I can say these things. We've got the observance thing down. But notice that Paul does, or James, excuse me, does not condemn religion. That's not what he does here. But he says, fat lot of good it's going to do you if you can't control your tongue. Literally, the word is bridle it. As in stick a bit in your mouth like a horse. And when a horse spits the bit, they don't respond to the rider. The horse is in control even when it hurts to do so. Even when continuing in that direction is going to leave marks after the immediate circumstance is over. You see, we can claim to be religious or observant. We can go to church and be generally pious, but if we don't control our tongues, James tells us it's worthless, empty, ineffective, and foolish. And this is the way that the law and the prophets talked about idolatry. It's the way that Barnabas and Paul talk about pagan beliefs in Acts 14 when they're taken for Zeus and Hermes in that passage. And in Romans 1, verses 21 and 22, Paul says, For although they knew God, speaking of the pagan world, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. That's the language James is evoking here. You can look religious, but if you don't control your tongue, it's foolish. You might as well be worshiping Zeus. It's just as effective. And this should give us pause as Christians. We need to ask ourselves, am I going through the motions? Does what I believe and what I say match up? Or, to use another horse-related metaphor, are we all hat and no cattle, as they say in Texas? You see, there's lots of ways that our tongues can get us into trouble. And it seems, the most obvious, is seen in verses 19 2.21. My brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because your, our anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. James seems to have anger most clearly in mind here. Think about what happens when we get angry. We say things that normally... We would never say, and it feels good, at least for the moment. I am going to give him a piece of my mind, and then you do. And what happens to the relationship after? Or this week. It's Valentine's Day this week. Tell me, 
Do all the chocolates and the flowers and the cards matter if the way we speak to one another indicates anything but love? Is our faith real if the things that we say to those closest to us are anything but pious or religious? If it betrays a heart that's not like God's? James says that the one who thinks that they're religious but doesn't control their tongue is self-deceived. Literally, the Greek says, they deceive their own heart. Let's take it a step further. Jesus says that the world around us will know who we are, that we are his because of our love. How would the people you know characterize your speech? Under control? Loving? What about the person you disagree with? The one whose ideas and ideals you find repugnant? Do you respond with kindness and love or anger, derision, and hate? There's a lot of that going on around the world today, especially in our country. A lot of people on all sides of all kinds of issues can't even seem to be civil with one another, much less loving. And unfortunately, a lot of the most shrill voices right now seem to be coming from people who claim to be Christians. What good is it? How real is our faith if we are not willing to control our tongues as we speak? Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying we have to agree with people we disagree with. But it does mean we have to disagree agreeably. Could it be that people are walking away from Christianity in part because the way we speak shows hate, not love? Do they want nothing to do with us because they see the truth of James' message to us more clearly than we do? Look at the way you talk. Why would I want to be a part of that? You claim to be about a God who loves and came for us, but all I hear is hate. Now we have to challenge false belief. We have to stand up for truth and for righteousness. And we have a culture that doesn't want to. But we need to be wise in the way that we do it. And I am constantly reminded that Jesus was always kind to the unbeliever. He recognized that they were lost. At the same time, Jesus reserved the harshest judgment for the religious, the pious, the ones who had the right forms and the right beliefs, at least on the surface, but whose hearts were self-deceived. And I have been forced to ask myself hard questions this week. Is your conversation above board? Does anger reign? Is your conversation truthful? Or do you say what needs to be said in order to get by, to seal the deal? to gain status or not ruffle feathers or any of a host of things. Does your speech line up with your faith? Because our words matter. And that first test exposes false religion quickly. The second test checks to see if our religion is true and pure and acceptable. If you ask someone what religious looks like, 
being religious looks like, and they're likely as not to give you a list of rules. Do's and don'ts. Usually, the list of don'ts is a lot longer than the list of do's. And a lot of people think about this about Christians in particular. Follow the rules, don't question them, and certainly don't try to come up with a different view. James is going to tell us that what we do matters, and specifically that we care for the oppressed. Jesus was regularly asked for lists, for rules, for commandments. He was asked for the greatest commandment by one of the teachers of the law, and he responded, uh, and he was asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life by a rich young ruler? He was asked for lists of rules, and he subverted the question every time. He says, love God and love others to the scribe. He says, sell your possessions and give your money to the poor, to the rich man. Why? Why would Jesus say these things? Because he was exposing the heart of the law, which is the heart of God himself. And he was also exposing the treachery of our own hearts. And James, in our passage today, especially in verse 27, is echoing his brother's words. He subverts popular notions of true belief and instead says that this is what true religion is because he goes to the heart of it. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress, he says in the first part of verse 27. What we say, as important as it is, is not enough. And in verse 22, James tells us that we must not simply listen, we must do. Notice, just like in verse 26, verse 22 points out our unbelievable talent for self-deception. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. If you listen to the sermon, if you just know the words to the song, but you don't do anything about it, your religion isn't real. James says. James isn't giving a comprehensive list here of what it means to be a Christian or a summary of true worship. This is New Testament wisdom literature, like the Proverbs. He's giving a rule of thumb, a general principle. John Calvin of this verse says, James does not define generally what religion is, but reminds us that religion without the things he mentions is nothing. Another way of putting it would be, true religion may well be more than this, but it's certainly not less. Typically, when we think about being religious, we think about going to church, observing baptism and communion, and reading the Bible and praying, maybe going to a small group. All good things. Beneficial things, things we ought to do. But James tells us, these are not the lowest common denominator. They are not the essence of religious belief, even though they look like it. Because false religion, even when, especially when, it sounds good and looks pious, is essentially idolatry. It's worthless and worships a false god while it seems to point to a real one. James says that true religion is not about trappings. It's about the heart of God. And the language he uses is interesting. It's all about ritual purity. That's what this this whole passage evokes. And in the Old Testament, one had to be ritually pure to approach God. There were all kinds of rules. They had to be holy. 
Now, this is not the same as being righteous. The Jewish people knew they were not righteous. That was the point of the sacrifices, especially on the Day of Atonement. Those made them right before God. But being holy, these steps for ritual purification, were about being set apart to and for God. Being holy meant both being God's people and showing God to the people around. In Exodus 19, the people are camped around Mount Sinai. They have left Egypt. And in verses 5 and 6, we read this. Moses is talking to God. And God says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. What is God saying to Moses here? I am setting you apart. You are my representatives to show me to the world that is mine. That's the point of all this religious stuff. Be set apart. And what we do matters. And James echoes that Old Testament language, that law language, that obedience language. This is not about doing things that make God okay with us. That's a fundamentalist reading of both the Old Testament and of James. James is saying that this is what a redeemed person does. What a lover of God, a follower of Jesus does. Not to earn a place with God, but because of what God has done on our behalf. Pure religion, acceptable religion, means responding. Do. Specifically, take care of, look after, visit orphans and widows in their distress or affliction. Why would James say this? Why didn't he say, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength as Jesus did? After all, that's Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, the central creed of Israel. He doesn't even say, love your neighbor. Why does he say widows and orphans? Why does he single them out? I think it's for at least two reasons. First, belief isn't something that's supposed to reside in our heads and our hearts alone. God intends our faith to be lived out in the real world using our hands. It is to be incarnate, not disembodied. And this gives us something tangible to do with our faith. It is not accidental or incidental that Jesus is God incarnate, enfleshed. That as Eugene Peterson puts it in the message in John 1.14, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Second, caring for widows and orphans shows God's heart in a way that almost nothing else does. Orphans and widows were the two most vulnerable Groups of people in the ancient world. No husband, no father meant destitution. Almost 100% of the time. And throughout the Old Testament, God cares for widows and orphans. And we see it in the stories, in the wisdom literature. We see it in law. We see it in prophets. And I want to show you just a few. In 1 Kings, 7, verse, or 1 Kings 17, verses 7 to 14, Elijah 
goes to the widow of Zarephath. Elijah, the great prophet of God, is without shelter and without sustenance, and he is sent to the only person more lowly than him, a widow with basically nothing left and her son. Their plight was hopeless. The text tells us this. In 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, Elijah's successor, Elisha, is confronted by the widow of a prophet. There were schools for prophets at the time. Widow of a prophet with several sons. Help me and my sons. We have nothing left, she goes to him. And Elijah could be seen as a burden on this widow, one other mouth to feed. But God sends him to her, not only so that he himself can be cared for, but through him that that woman can be cared for and her son can be saved. Elisha is used by God to provide a means. This is the story with get the oil jars from your neighbors and you fill the oil and it keeps filling and it keeps filling. To provide a means to pay off debts so, so that she and her sons can survive, can be cared for. Ruth, an entire book. She is the prototypical widow in the Old Testament, and Boaz stands in for Israel and what Israel's to be throughout the book of Ruth. This is the story of the grandmother of Israel's greatest king, and she's not even Jewish. Psalm 68, 5, we read, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. And in Proverbs 15, 25, we read, The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but he sets the widow's boundary stones in place. The law makes it clear that the people of Israel are not to exploit the widow or the orphan. We see it in Exodus 22, in Deuteronomy 10, and 24, and 14. In Isaiah chapter 1, God, through the prophet Israel, or prophet Isaiah, ties purity, holiness, God's heart, action, true religion, and care for the widow and orphan together. And it sounds a whole lot like what James was getting after. God cares about this immensely. I don't have time this morning, but read Isaiah chapter 1. And it is a scathing rebuke to the leadership of Israel who does not care for the widow and the orphan. And we see this in the New Testament as well, in Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 5, where the church cares for widows. The church is supposed to carry on in the same manner of Israel. Take care of the helpless and the hopeless. This is what true and acceptable religion is. Why am I spending so much time on this? I have been tremendously convicted about this in the past week. I called Phil and talked to him about it. After all, what is the gospel? That God came for us when we could do nothing for ourselves. That Jesus came and lived perfectly and showed us the Father and died in our place, conquering death. He rose showing who God is and what God wants. He reconciles us to himself because he is the God who always comes for the helpless. Always. And we are always, always helpless. So, when we care for the helpless, we show the heart of God to the world. When we love the least and the lost, the ones who can't care for themselves, we show the world what kind of God we serve. 
We love God and love others most truly when we act in a manner that follows the example that God has already given us. Taking care of widows and orphans in their distress does this in a tangible way. And the principle here goes well beyond specifically widows and orphans. And James is reminding us that God cares about those who cannot care for themselves. And he expects us to be the means of that care. So let's get practical. What does this look like? First, we are told in Scripture to take care of our fellow believers. We help those in need. It may be money, it may be shelter, and it may be more. As an elder, I hear stories. I've seen how people in our church have given cars or money to pay for medical bills or rent or a place to stay or have shown grace when the consequences of sin come home to roost. And these are all ways that we can support people in need. We can offer rides. We can be there to comfort, be a shoulder to cry on. Pastor Phil sent an email to everyone who was preaching this passage um, earlier. He has no idea I'm going to do this. Um, he had been looking at the word visit here. And this is what he said in that email. It strikes me as significant because it's a very active word. Examine with the eyes, inspect, visit, go see. It's pretty easy for us to passively look after by just giving our money to care for orphans and widows. But it seems to me that the verse is calling us to more to be actively involved with our time and energy, with our whole hearts, in caring for the orphans and widows or in caring for whoever the lowest of the low, most helpless in our society. It seems to me that it's not good enough for me to just be part of a church that is doing it, but I need to be investing some of who I am in caring for the needs of others personally, face to face. That's a good word. That's convicting. The second way we take care of the helpless, we have to go beyond ourselves, beyond the church. We must go to the helpless, whomever they are, showing the real love of God to them. And this is where it gets hard. This is where I've been convicted the most. It's where our faith gets real. You see, it's one thing to help the person who's one of us. But what about the other? What about the prostitute? What about the woman, probably a girl, who has just aborted her baby and is alone and in pain? What about the gay teenager who just got kicked out of his Christian home? What about the person whose ethnicity or politics or whatever is different than mine? You see... That's when it gets tough. The red wagon, I love coming and seeing the red wagon. It's a great place to start. The table in the back this morning is a fantastic place to start. Opportunities are there. Today, there are over 60 million people in the world who are displaced. Think about that number. That's practically twice the population of Canada. Over half of the population of Syria, around 11 million people, are on the run right now for their lives. Just this past week, revelations came to light of one prison in Syria where since 2011, 13,000 people have been hanged. 
And that doesn't include the torture or what they did to the bodies after they were dead. Our country is very divided right now on the issue of refugees. And we have made it a political issue. James tells us it's not a political issue, it's a religious issue. Do we care about the helpless? For those whose very lives are at stake. And we can argue about policies, we can argue about where and how to help people, and that's fine. But as Christians, the thing we can't argue about is our obligation to help them. James says we must care for the widow and the orphan, the helpless and the hopeless. Some of these refugees today are quite literally the widow and the orphan. And we show God's love for the hopeless and the helpless when we care for them. We show that God's love has changed us. That our faith is more than what we say. It's more than the people that look like us and act like us and have the same culture as us. We are becoming more like Christ every day. And I understand and I even share some of the fears that come with reaching out. I have three young children. I have one child who will always live with me because of his autism. And I understand the fear, especially in reaching out to the Muslim world. But my own safety questions aside, I have to ask. I have been forced to ask this last week. Who needs Jesus more than a Muslim and a Muslim terrorist? Who needs Jesus more? I keep asking myself this question more than anyone else because I know where my heart goes left to its own devices. I am unbelievably adept at switching with blinding speed between blaming the victim and seeking revenge on perpetrators. See what happens when you reject God and his morality? Hunt them down and stamp them out. And when I'm really worked up into a righteous anger and send them to hell, and then I realize what I have just thought. Because that's the most heinous curse that I could ever think of. Far worse than any swear word I could ever say. Because it's real. And it's eternal. And it means being cut off from God. And that is exactly what Jesus came to prevent for all of us. And I know that the early church behaved far better than I am tempted to behave. In the early days of the church, the apostles had all died. And in around 165 A.D., and again 100 years later, in 251 A.D., plagues hit Rome. In the second, it's estimated that 5,000 people per day died. The pagan Romans would literally put their relatives, their family members, outside in the streets before they were dead so that they wouldn't catch it. And a lot of them went out and fled into the countryside. You know who stayed behind? The Christians. The Christians cared for the sick, risking their own lives for the others who were dying. The pagans who were dying. And many historians believe that this becomes the turning point for Christianity in the Roman Empire because the pagan Romans saw who the Christians really were. And by the way, 
That second plague in 251 happened during a pretty intense period of persecution of Christians. They still acted out of love for their neighbors at great cost to themselves, risking death just because they were Christians, risking death from disease. They cared because they knew what Jesus had done for them. And I wonder if I am so bold. Christ does not call us to safety, and he does not call us to fear. He calls us to love. And when we do, the world around us cannot help but notice. We must care for the oppressed. It's God's heart. Final test. Who you are. See, this last part of verse 27 often gets overlooked. I hear a lot of Christians talk about caring for the widow and the orphan as being pure religion, but they forget that there's this big and. And keep oneself from being unpolluted by the world. It's about more than what we say and even more than what we, what we do. It's about who we are. You see, when we keep ourselves unpolluted, this does not mean run from the world. Clearly, James has just said, take care of widows and orphans. And clearly, we have to stand up for the truth. Jesus never backs down from telling the truth, and neither did Paul, neither does James. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.12, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Clearly, this is not hiding. James says literally, keep oneself unspotted or unstained by the world. And there's that Old Testament purity language again. We must be uncorrupted. And we want to ask ourselves, how? Well, when I think about purity language and sacrifices and all of that, I come to a quick conclusion. There is only one spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. He alone forgives us and reconciles us to the Father. He alone shows us the way, and it is only in and through the power of the Spirit that we become like him. We have to be in the world to bear witness to our God, but we must be wise, uncorrupted. James tells us, in verse 25, that we have to know the word of God and to do it, right? But those who look intently into the perfect law, know it, that gives freedom and continue in it, do it, not forgetting that what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. We have to obey. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Sounds kind of the same. For all of those who think Paul and James are at odds, no, they're not. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, don't be corrupted, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I love the way the NLT says it. Let God change the way you think. It's God who does it. 
then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good and perfect and pleasing will. And in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, Paul says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. You want to be spotless? Be like the spotless lamb. Be rooted in him. Sink your soul down deep into him and drink the nutrients of his life. Being set apart is not about hiding. It means absorbing Jesus so much that when we go into the world, he oozes out of us. We have died to ourselves and becoming more like him. And the longer that I have lived, the longer I've been a Christian, the more I have realized that on my own, I cannot control my tongue. I cannot reach out to the hurting and the hopeless as I ought. And I cannot be unspotted by the world. But, but very fortunately for, my, for me, I don't have to do it on my own. When Jesus gives his last instructions to the disciples before the crucifixion, in the upper room discourse, part of which we heard from John chapter 15 today, and John chapter 14, Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit several times, and he says in John 14, verses 15 and 16 and 18, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Pure and acceptable religion before God our Father is not one-dimensional. True religion is a lifestyle of obedience to God. It's what we say and what we do. It's who we are. And we are His, not our own. We are to be like Him and we are to show Him to a lost and needy world. And it is not easy, but we are not alone. And so I leave you with John 14, verses 26 and 27. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Amen and amen.